Proverbs, if you would. We're going to talk first, though, about tonight. Just one quick one. We try to do these each time we do a Proverbs. We don't have time. There's more we could do. But we'll do one tonight. Just do the first one. And what wisdom would you give someone if they were trying to decide on buying a house? What wisdom? God's wisdom. What, what would be God's wisdom that you would try to give them if they were buying a house? And you don't have to be a realtor or anything to do that. Yes. Wait, wait. I, I, everybody's got Oh, I hope this stays on. Okay, here you go. Yeah, absolutely. Probably more than you are, right? <laughs> Making sure they have enough money saved. You have money saved. All right. If you don't, she has it. <laughs> Doreen. going far away from where you originally live, but find a good church first and see if the house is near a good church. Okay. If your house is near a good church. Ooh, didn't mean to do that. Near a good church. That would be crucial. Tom. Saw you. That the house is built on a good foundation. Oh, that was a double metaphor going on there. Was there someone over here I missed? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Loretta, could you, Amy? Thank you. As a former realtor, get pre-approved for a mortgage first so you know your price range before you even start looking because you may fall in love with a house that you can't even afford. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Linda. Yes, you do. I need you to do it. I say pray about it. If it's God's will, it'll go like really smooth. Okay. Say you can afford a house that's two hundred thousand dollars. Doesn't mean you should buy a house that's two hundred thousand dollars. Oh wow, that is good, Mom. <laughs> okay. I'm coming. Well, I like to look at Trulia and check out the crime that's in that area. Make sure you're not moving somewhere dangerous. That's right. I didn't get that choice when I moved next door. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Well, we pray about it and then do what Phil wants. <laughs> Do you hear that? He prays about it and does what his wife wants. That's good. One second, my friend. Uh, maybe make sure or to the possibility to know if there's any liability or dangerous things in the house that need to be taken care of. Okay. No, no hidden problems, right? The Bible says, look well to thy flocks and diligently study about the home. Make sure it's built well and, and you're not being robbed with taxes. Okay, Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Pray that God would lead you to a neighborhood where you could have a ministry in the neighbor's lives. Oh, may your tribe increase. Last one, I think. I got to do this. Move across instead of running over. I'm too old for this. The school system in the area. Ah. That's important. School system. Anybody buying a house this year coming up? Yeah, not after that, right? Okay. Proverbs 1.
This is what I call the motto of Proverbs. The motto of Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7. Okay? Now let me tell you about it first. In literature, if, if a text, whether small or great, a paragraph, a verse, a paragraph, a chapter, a book, is segmented off or bracketed by the same or a very similar phrase, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes, um, that's going to be telling you what the framework or the theme of it uh, is, and then everything in between it develops that very theme. Proverbs 1.7 has very, talks about the fear of God, and it also does it in the very last chapter in 31.30, when it talks about the woman who fears God. So fear of God starts this book and ends this book. It's also... Um, starts and ends this first section. Remember we said chapters 1 through 9 all are inundated with the little phrase, my son, because a father is teaching his son how to navigate through life and what true wisdom is. And so we said that's the hermeneutical grid, chapters 1 through 9, that you look through the rest of the book as. You get these principles down in chapter 1 through 9, and that's how you look at the rest of the Proverbs that are more individualistic. That section, chapters 1 through 9, is also bracketed with this phrase, fear of God, in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 9, and verse 10. It's also in the very middle of the book, chapter 15 and verse 33. So pretty much 20 times altogether in Proverbs, fearing God or fearing the Lord is mentioned. So it is a very prominent theme. It's prominent in Proverbs, but it isn't prominent in our culture. And I hate to say it, not very prominent, as it ought to be, at least, in our churches at times. Um, I have a phrase called the no fear of God culture. And that's the kind of world in which we live today. We live in a no fear of God culture. We have a little bit of a different Bible study. I need you to have your Bibles handy, because we're going to look at a number of verses. Um, the first one is... The phrase, wise in your own eyes. I think the next one there. Um, no fear of God culture. Um, there are a few phrases in the Bible that this sentence is used. Someone look up for me. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 11. Raise your hand. and then Okay, Sandy. Then also I need um, Psalm 36 and verse 1. Sue, then I have Exodus 9 and verse 30, Exodus 9 and verse 30, Nick, and then lastly, Romans 3 and verse 18, and Tim, okay? And as they're reading them, would you please take the time to turn to each one of them? I'd appreciate that, because we're going to comment a little bit on it, Okay? No fear of God before their eyes. What does that mean? Genesis uh, chapter 20, and that's Sandy. This man said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So in that text, when there's no fear of God in this place, what was he saying? He had to tell people in his mind, he thought he had to lie, and said his wife was his sister. Why? Because there's no fear of God in this place, meaning the explanation is they would kill me because 
It's my wife. What did he mean by that? What does it mean to have no fear of God in this place? You can help. Is, let me, go ahead. Yes, they don't believe in God. They thought that it would be okay if it was, if he said it was his wife and they just took her, they would just kill him because then it would make it right for them to take his wife. That's how they thought life worked and that's the wisdom on which they functioned, right? So he had to lie, he thought, because what? There's no fear of God in this place. So when they're, watch, no fear of God, no moral or ethical behavior, Right? Psalm 36 and verse 1. Sue. Transgression speaks to the ungodly and wicked Transgression of the weak, wicked speaks to him in his heart. And there is no fear of God before his eyes. In other words, when you're wicked, it's all the way through down to the core and existence of who you are, even in your heart. And why is it completely inundate your life from the inside out because you don't know God. So we live in a culture, right, that doesn't fear God. From the inside out, they're wicked and they have a complete lack of ethical and moral behavior. Not because some are all that way, some are worse than others, but that's the stereotype, Bible says, of a no fear of God culture. Exodus 9 and verse 30 Moses is talking to Pharaoh. Pharaoh will not let the people of God go. Why? Because he doesn't know God. Who is God that I should fear him or worship him? He says, you don't fear God yet, but you will, right? So he did eventually fear God, right? He recognized who God was, but Pharaoh worshiped false gods. Pharaoh didn't care about slaves. He, he had no right relationship with people, right? That's no fear of God. Last one, Romans 3.18, which is a New Testament quotation of that Old Testament verse. Tim? There is no fear of God Right. The whole thing talks about what a lost person is. There is none righteous, no, not one. All the way down from verse 10 to the end of that little paragraph, verse 18, which is a quotation. And no fear of God before their eyes is what summarizes or capsulizes the whole depravity of lost people. So if no fear of God before their eyes is a way of saying that you are lost, you don't know God, and depravity of sin is what characterizes your life. With that definition in your mind, tell me some, raise your hand, tell me some areas of America where it's obvious there is no fear of God. Bob? The college campus. Keep going. What do you mean? Okay, only in colleges? No. They have the fear of God at our public high schools here in Hamilton? No. You've experienced it by the teachers there, right? Passing out Bibles. So we can say this. We live in a no fear of God in our educational system publicly. Right? No fear of God there. And that's not only true with what they teach in the classroom, but everything else about it. I'm not saying that to condemn because it's expected, right? Although it is condemning in the end for them. 
But I just want you to know, this is the culture that you and your children live in. What else about America? What other part of our... Yes? Abortion clinics. Abortion clinics, okay? So what would we say? Our moral social system is bankrupt, right? So we don't value life anymore. But why? Why is it that we have so many millions of abortions? There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a danger, isn't it? It's a real danger. What else? What else about America? What, what else about our culture? Yes, Cheryl. The media. The media. Yeah, I, I actually put the entertainment culture that we have, right? The media, and you could go out, we could be there forever on that. I mean, the internet, movies, TV, I mean, it's endless, right? I mean, really endless. There is no fear of God. So re remember that when you put your TV on, or whatever else you might do. Yes, Carl. Okay, tell me what you mean. Right. So there's no, no fear of God in most corporations or businesses. They're not interested in acknowledging him or adhering to any biblical things, correct? Yes. Yes. That is so true, isn't it? Yes, there are churches that preach doctrine that goes against the Bible. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. Yes. Do what you please on Sunday morning. That would be some churchgoers, right? Yes? Yes, I put the political system. The political system. You don't have to swear in the Bible anymore, do you? You don't have to say, you take an oath, right? I swear by God. You don't have to do that anymore, right? Not in our culture. There is no, you, they're taking down the Ten Commandments. I watched a video. I, I never did see the end of it, but I was watching it live, but it was going to take a while. Last week, a college campus had a chapel or a church on it that had been there for long, I, I want to say 75 years, down south somewhere, and they were bringing in the crane to rip off the cross on top of the steeple because they thought it was inflammatory on the college campus that there was no right to have a Christian symbol on that campus, even though it had been there since it's almost its outset. But that's, there is no fear of God in our culture anymore. Right? Now, what do we have to be afraid of? There are two dangers I want to warn you about that Proverbs warns us about. Um, they are the opposite. Can I tell you that? They're the opposite of fearing God. Okay? There are these two phrases. And I do not, I'm not going to list all the ways they're used. But there's a number of them. And uh, here's the phrases. I wrote down the chief one on the screen. And there are three more which are not identical, but they're very, very similar. Okay? The first one is wise in your own eyes. I do want to read these. Proverbs 3, 7. Who would read it for us tonight? Proverbs 3, 7. Jane. And then uh, Proverbs... 26, there, chapter 26, there are three verses in this chapter, and I'm going to have someone read all three of them. Verse 26, 5, 12, and 16. Okay, Yosef? 
That's chapter 26, 5, 12, and 16. And then lastly on this one, Proverbs 28 and verse 11. You think you can handle it? I know you can. You can even stand up on the pew there if you need to. Okay? So listen to this. Okay? Listen to what goes with this phrase. Okay? Remember the choices. Remember wisdom's always a choice. Always. That's why it's wisdom wars. That's the theme. Because wisdom is always, almost always couched, and you have to choose one wisdom or another. All right? So the fear of the Lord is God's wisdom. Remember the motto? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and only fools reject that, only reject wisdom from God, right? Proverbs also says later on that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. It's also in Job 28, 28. So there's God's wisdom, listen, and there's self-wisdom. There are people, even some of God's people at times, who thinks that they don't need to check in with God, that they are wise in themselves. And we're going to read about them. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Okay, so there you go. Being wise in your own eyes and fearing the Lord are opposites, polar opposites. So you can't use God's wisdom and have your wisdom working at the same time in your decision-making process. And the way that you know that you're doing that is what, Jane? You turn, turn from evil. The moral, ethical part. So you are using your wisdom every time what you're doing is not the right way to do it. If it's the wrong way to do it, the wrong approach, if it's wrong methods then it's your way. If, it be, if it's disobedience to what God says is right and wrong, it's your way. No matter how many verses you may quote. Right? Um, Proverbs 26. Joseph has all three of those. Okay, a fool. So a person is wise in their own... Put this in your memory bank when you read the Bible. Someone who's wise in their own eyes, the Bible says there's more hope of a fool than of him. Remember this. Fools are lost. Make that in your Bible. Put a note there. Fools are not believers. So if you're wise in your own eyes, how serious is that? It's an indication that you're lost. Because you're a fool. A fool is the opposite of wise. Okay? In the Bible, in Proverbs particularly, but all the Bible. If you are a fool, that's why you can't call your brother Raka, Jesus says, you fool, because it's a condemnation of his eternal life. So you're foolish. It's, it's an indication that you really don't know God if you're using your wisdom instead of his and making it a choice to do so. And then lastly, in that 2811, who has that pointing over? Yes. Okay, a rich man, right, is wise in his own eyes. So be careful. You know why? Because when you get things and you have power and you have position and you have wealth and possessions, you begin to think that you got all this stuff and the house you live in is because you're so wise and the, the things that you have, see, it's you and you forget how dependent on God's wisdom you really are. But the poor, poor person, they don't forget that. And that's why there's the contrast. So other ones, if you want to write them down, they're worth your own study. 
Wise in your own eyes is very similar to this phrase, right in your own eyes. It's in Proverbs 12, 15, and 21, 2. Also, it's used as a little bookend in the book of Judges. Remember it says, there was no king in the land, and every did, everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. Do we not live in a country where everybody does their own thing? I mean, all you got to do is read Facebook, right? Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Truth is subjective. There are no absolutes. You do whatever makes you feel good. That's the world in which we live. Third one, pure in your own eyes. There are those who think they're pure in their own eyes, that they don't see themselves as doing wrong in circumstances, but they're so wrong about it. But they don't see it because they're not using God's wisdom. The last phrase, which is very similar as well, all these used in Proverbs, clean in their own eyes. Very similar, if not identical, to the previous one. So our admonition, the motto of Proverbs, the way that we live our lives is to be in the fear of God. That's to use his wisdom to navigate through life and make our decisions. The dangers are, what? The dangers are wise in your own eyes, using your own wisdom, borrowing from the wisdom of the world around us to make decisions in our lives. Now, lastly, before we're done here tonight, I want to show you a couple different things. Main principle tonight is this. The fear of God is meant to be a motivation for right behavior. All right? It's a motivation. Remember this again. Fear of God is always coupled with some sort of ethical or moral reality. In other words, it's not really the fear of God if it doesn't lead to obedience. Let me show you a couple examples of that. Don't turn too far. If you're already in Genesis... Turn right over a couple pages to chapter 22. I referenced this in my message Sunday. I want to do a little bit more with it in this text tonight. You know the section. This is called in Hebrew the Akidah. And this is where Abraham is asked by God to offer his son Isaac. I know we think of him as a little boy in the flannel graph as how he was a little kid. and offer him. He wasn't a little kid, probably... Somewhere around 17, maybe even 20. And uh, so he's an older teenager. And, and Abraham has been waited 25 years. And they finally have this boy. He's the son of promise. And now he's the only one they're ever going to get. Because all these years have passed even since his birth. And they know this is it. They're not getting another one. So God has told them that this is the one that all the sand of the seashore and all the children and all those people are going to come from. But then why would God tell him to sacrifice if it doesn't make sense, does it? But he does it anyways. And notice the Bible says that he takes the boy over there in worship and I will come again to you. And he says, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son. He took his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together and Isaac said to him, Father... Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told them, most believed to be Mount Moriah, eventually where the temple would be built and the sacrifices given. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife, so to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
He says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Listen, for now I know that you fear God. Now, would you have described putting Isaac on the altar and a knife to his throat as fearing God? No, probably not. But why does he? Notice verse 18 describes the same event, but substitutes a different phrase. Verse 18. And in your offspring, God says, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. I'm going to fulfill those promises. Why? Because you feared me. No. What does he say? Because you, oh yeah, you obeyed my voice. Put those two together in your mind. Fearing God is obeying God. Watch. How far would you have to go? You'd have to be willing to obey him, even if it meant offering up the Isaac in your life. Your most treasured thing, person, goal, ideal, ambition, dream, desire, want, person. That's what God's looking for. Fearing God means that you love him supremely. That there is no one and there is nothing that you treasure, love, or value above him. And then, listen, and then you do accordingly. You live accordingly. So the Bible says that that's what the fear of God is, that you will obey God no matter what in your life. We have a couple more texts and we'll be done tonight. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17. Not a well-known text, but a good one. Pharaoh is killing all the little babies in Moses' day. If you have a boy baby, you're supposed to take him to the river and drop him in. Get rid of it or have him killed. But the midwives, they don't do that. What do they do? Verse 15, chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shifra, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. What's the next phrase? Oh, yeah, but the midwives feared God. Now, you know what? They, they mentioned two of their names, but they're not the only ones. But they were told by the Pharaoh. Imagine giving an order by the President of the United States. And you flatly refuse to do it. That's what we're doing here. It says in verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And they even basically made up a story about why they were doing what they were doing. Right? But that's what it does. See, fearing God means obedient. Obedient not to do what is wrong, i.e., have babies killed at birth, watch, and positively to do what is right, and that is be willing to give up your child, Isaac. See, they're the opposite of one another, but they both are actions that, betray, that demonstrate that you fear God, and obedience is it. Let's go relational real quick. Leviticus. Last time you've been in Leviticus, I bet it's been a while. Chapter 19. Verse 14, and then verse 32. 
You tell me as we read, what does fearing God vertically supposed to do in your life horizontally? If you fear God, it'll make a difference in how you treat people, all kinds of people. Ready? Let's watch. Leviticus 19 and verse 14 reads, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but what? But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So people who have handicaps, what you, should, you should take care of them. You should be nice to them. You should not make it difficult for them. Why? Because you fear God, and it, it should be demonstrated horizontally in how you care about people. Leviticus 25. Turn there if you would. Leviticus 25, 17. You shall not wrong one another. In other words, don't do anything ethically or morally that's against someone. Don't treat them in wrong ways. Why? But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. So you can't be fearing God if you're mistreating people on a horizontal level. Verse 36. Leviticus 25, 36. If your brother becomes poor... And cannot maintain himself with you, and you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him. So if someone is in need and they need money, don't loan them money and then charge them interest. He says, there's no heart in that, he says. Don't charge him interest from him for profit. Why? But fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You fear God. Treat him nice. Do what you can for him. Don't expect anything back. Verse 43. Verse 42. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So if you have slaves and you brought them out, don't mistreat them. Don't do what the Egyptians do with slaves around you. Because remember, you were one. He says, treat your slaves kindness. Right? Not ruthlessly. Why? Because you fear God. Now, two minutes. Unless you think that fearing God is only an Old Testament concept, let me have you turn over a couple places in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, fear of God equals ethical and moral behavior equaling obedience. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness, listen to this, to completion. In other words, here's how you advance in your growth spiritually and your sanctification. You know how you do it? Not not by just not doing the bad things and doing the right thing. No, you have it in a certain awe and respect and attitude, the way you approach it. You You complete your holiness in the fear of God. I'm not doing it to impress people. I'm not doing it just so I can say I kept the rules. No, I do this in my life horizontally in in my relationships with people and my personal growth and spiritual sanctification. Why? Because I'm always thinking about how this affects God. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22.
Remember how in Leviticus it was told how slave masters should not be ruthless to their slaves in the fear of God? Now we're going to go the opposite way. Colossians 3.22, bond servants are slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, what? fearing the Lord. So here's how it should work. A slave master fears God and is good to his slave. A slave is fearing God and fears God and loves his master. That's how the relationship should work. It should be reciprocal and it should be mutual. Last one, and I saved it for last. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but look at Luke chapter 23. We came to the table tonight, and I want to end there, about the cross. Remember I told you about the cross opposite wisdom let me show you some wisdom from a guy you would never thought it would come from this is i find this to be quite amazing you know the scene jesus is crucified in the middle he has two lestai thieves is probably misleading the greek word means rebellious or lestai they're they're insurrectionists they were people who stabbed roman soldiers and crowds and walked off or raised money and robbed. The people who robbed the Good Samaritan on the highway were, they were less died. They were people who took money, stole. They were thieves, but not like broke into a house to thieves just so I can get some money. Not, that's not what it's about. They were doing it to build for their cause so they could rebel against Rome and raise a rebellion. That's why they get crucified. They were capital punishment. Just like Jesus had rebelled against Roman government claiming to be a king, these were equally guilty of that crime. You know the story that they both end up next to Jesus. And seemingly, if you read the, all the gospel stories, that they both mocked Jesus from the big start. But not one of them finished that way. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, and let me turn over the right passage here, and then all, here in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Christ equals king. Because remember, the little, called Latin, the little titulus on top, it was, a, it was a big placard with a title in three languages, at Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Latin, perhaps. We're on top of it, and it said, Jesus, king of the Jews. So he's basically taunting them, saying, hey, if you're the Christ, because it says it right on top of your head, if you're the king, save yourself. Show us. Where is your king power? Remember wisdom of the cross? To this guy, Jesus being the king is a joke. Foolishness. This is moronic thinking. Kings are not Jewish slaves dying, crucified, and overpowered by Roman government on the cross. You were a failed Messiah when you were crucified. And by the way, historically, there were failed messiahs who got crucified before Jesus and after. He wasn't the only one who claimed this. He's just another one in the line. And that's how this guy views him. That's how he views his situation. Why? Because he's operating on a certain wisdom, right? But that's not what the other guy says. The other, verse 40, rebuked him. Here's a guy dying on the cross for the same thing. Rebuking this. What does he say? Underline it. Do you not fear God? You see what he says? Are you kidding me? 
you're going to believe that. You, you, what, you have no, you're a fool, basically. And notice what he says. This is an astounding revelation. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, so in some way, this guy not only understands that Jesus is Messiah and King, but there's some divinity, some divine notion in his mind because fearing God and you're under the same condemnation as God, or at least Jesus the King, I mean, he's totally changed his mind by watching him die on the cross. See, that's what this table should do. That's what this table should do. See, we come here and we reenact in the sense that our minds and hearts, this is what Jesus is. He is a king. But how is he king? What's the wisdom of this table? It's not the power over wisdom. It's not that I get over you. It's not that I shove it down your throat. It's not that I do it because I've got position on you. That's not the cross way. That's the Corinthian way. And this guy says, you don't get it. You think Jesus dying just like you means he can't be who he is. You'd be terribly wrong, he says. And the, listen, and the only way you can see that is if you fear God. See, that's what I'm after in this series. That's how I want for all of us. Fearing God changes how you see what everyone else will see. The obvious truth to this guy is completely wrong. And to him it's completely obvious. But he is dead wrong. Dead wrong. Literally dead wrong. See what I mean? Fearing God changes everything. How you look at everything. The pattern of how you respond to your spouse. When things go wrong in your life, when you don't get your way, when someone mistreats you, says things about you, does things to you. See, fearing God changes all of that. How you're going to respond and how you see it all. That's the wisdom wars that you and I fight. And can I tell you, that battle is fought in one right here right here let's pray father help us can we even have lord the wisdom of a dying revolutionary slave the wisdom to see jesus who you really are and what that means in our lives yes vertically and horizontally Help us by teaching us to fear you, God. Because Proverbs says, blessed is the one who fears God always. May that be your people at Faith Baptist Church. We ask in your name. Amen.